everyone and welcome back to another episode of what the forensics my name is nicole and like always i'm joined here today by the lovely journey and rebecca um this week journey will be telling us all about the case and cult of bagwan sri rajneesh and then rebecca will then be educating us on the science of forensic epidemiology and how it plays important an important role in um, this case. I would also like to note that there is a listener's discretion advised as there are detailed descriptions of poisoning and death. On that, I would like to hand the baton off to Journey to tell us a little bit about this cult. Thank you, Nicole. Um, I kind of struggled researching this because there was just so much information known about him. So to kind of like condense that and focus on what's important for us was very tricky. Um, but like Nicole said, I'm going to be telling you guys about Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh. Rajneesh. Um, he was also known as o- Osho, Akaria Rajneesh, or just Rajneesh. So I'm going to be referring to him mostly as Rajneesh for this episode. And I just realized I said that name always in my head and never out loud, and I didn't realize how hard it was to pronounce. Um, so the name Rajneesh was his childhood nickname that meant God of Night or the Moon. And I feel like that played a fairly substantial role in his life, um, as we will see. So he was born December 11th, 1931 in Kushwada, India. Um, so that's also my birthday. And that was a very weird coincidence for me to kind of discover. Um, obviously, I wasn't born in 1931, but... Um, and so as names kind of played a big role with him, he was born with yet another name, which was Chandra Mohan Jain. Um, and he was the oldest of 11 children and lived with his maternal grandparents until he was eight years old. Rajneesh accounts that living with his grandparents impacted who he was because his grandmother gave him a lot of freedom and not a lot of education or restrictions. And so his grandfather died when he was seven years old, which is why he went back to live with his parents. And then when Rajneesh was 15, his girlfriend at the time died. And so her death kind of combined with his grandfather's death led to a fascination with death in his early years. And so I think this also contributed to who he became. During his school years, he was both gifted and rebellious and gained quite a bit of a reputation for his debates. Um, I feel like he was that annoying kid in class who was like, um, actually, professor, it's this. So we love that for him. Um, he became very critical of traditional religion and was interested in expanding one's consciousness. Consciousness. Holy cow. <laughs> um, and was interested in expanding one's consciousness through breath control, yoga, meditation, fasting, the occult, which is mystical and magical practices, and hypnosis. He was also very... In- oh, Nicole. Sorry to interrupt. This is like related, unrelated, but the breathing practices... Do you know of the Wim Hof breathing technique? No, I haven't heard of it. Okay, I don't know if it would be like something similar to that. Like, do you think it was a very much uh, focus on your breath type thing or like uh, like altering your breathing? Because I think the Wim Hof is like a, how you can breathe better in certain situations and like stuff like that. I think it was kind of like where um, you like focus on controlling anxiety through breathing. So like seven in, seven out. And so you can kind of get to an altered state of mind through how you breathe. So I think that was kind of it. And so by like holding your breath for a certain amount of time, something can happen. And by the way you breathe in and then um, the pace of your breathing. So like breathing fast and then short and then long and whatever. I think that's kind of where he was. Or even just like moving with your breath, like in yoga. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. Wim Hof was like how to breathe. He's known as the Iceman or like becoming the Iceman. So he like swims in cold, cold water. And so his Uh, breathing very much like changes how his body reacts to the cold in a way. Right. 
yeah. yeah, so I think that would still be like a facet of his breathing or his breath control, but okay. like less so. Like if that was your goal is to be able to breathe or like maximize your breathing for cold water, he would be able to help help you with that, but it wouldn't be like his main focus. Okay. At least that's my understanding. If I'm wrong, someone let me know and I can fix that. Um, so Rajneesh was also very interested in the views of Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels. And so he was absolutely fascinated by communism, which again, largely influenced who he was. Um, in 1951, when he was 19, he started studying at the Hitkarini College in Jabalpur, but he was eventually asked to leave due to conflicts with the instructor. He then transferred to D.N. Jane College, um, but he was required not to attend the classes except for exams because he was constantly starting arguments and debates. Um, that same year, he started speaking at the annual Sarva Dharma Samelan, which means meeting of all faiths. And so he spoke there until 1968. Um, in 1953, he claimed to have become spiritually enlightened when he experienced something mystical under a tree in the Bon Vartel Garden in Jabalpur when he was 21. That sounds a lot like Buddha's story. Oh, I don't know Buddha's story. <laughs> Bo- I was thinking uh, of Buddha. Newton. <laughs> when Newton had the apple. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, that was my thought. I don't remember... I think Buddha's name before being the Buddha was Sudharma Gautama, but I could be thinking of another religious figure. Um, and basically he went on this long story short, like big journey of self-discovery. And at some point he just found this like tree just alone, I think on a hill. And he went and sat under it for, I don't remember how long, but it was a long yeah. time. And then one day he just kind of realized he was like, I am enlightened. I understand everything about the universe and we are all one. And then he became the Buddha, which means the enlightened one. But yeah, that just sounds really similar to what this guy (laughs) says he did. That's very interesting. I would love to look into that and see any like similarities of even like location or whatever. Or if he was influenced at all by Buddha. Um, Anyway, questions for another time. So he completed his bachelor's degree in philosophy in 1955 and then finished his master's also in philosophy in 1957 from the University of Sagar. And after completing his master's, he got a job teaching at the Raipur Sanskrit College, but again was asked to leave because he was considered a danger to his students' morality, character, and religion. So he then worked at Jabalpur University first as a lecturer and then was promoted to professor. While he was working at Jabalpur University, he was traveling around India under his name Akaraya Rajneesh, giving lectures that were criticizing socialism, Gandhi, and institutional religions. And so Akaraya means teacher or professor. And so he was kind of like, because Rajneesh, means god of the night so he's kind of like teacher god of the night is what his name meant and so his opinions on religion were very controversial and even still it resulted in him gaining quite a few followers and then by 1962 he was holding three and ten day meditation camps so some of the first meditation centers started popping up around his teachings which was known as the life awakening movement And then in 1966, he had a particularly controversial speaking tour, and he was forced to resign from his teaching post at the university. In 1968, he became known as the sex guru in the Indian press due to a lecture series that was later published as From Sex and Superconsciousness, where he asked for a wider acceptance of sex. And so he was very progressive in his feelings towards sex, which was not appreciated by others as it um, contrasted quite a few of the religions that were widely accepted at that time. And then in 1969, he was asked to speak at the Second World Hindu Conference, where he said, quote, any religion which considers life meaningless and full of misery and teaches the hatred of life is not a true religion. Religion is an art that shows how to enjoy life, end quote. 
And so this statement was extremely controversial at the time and probably still today. Um, but I like it. Not to say that I support everything that he does, but I do like that quote. Um, in 1970, Rajneesh was at a public meditation event, and that's where he first presented his dynamic meditation, which involves fast breathing and then moving around with music and dancing. And so when I Googled it, it looked like it was really, really cool and would be interesting to, like, watch. Um, but yeah, so if you're bored, check that out. In September 1970, he started his first group of disciples called Sannyasins. In order to become a disciple, you have to change your name, wear a traditional dress that Hindu holy men wear, including a beaded necklace with a locket that has a photo of Rajneesh inside. And he also taught his disciples to live fully in the world without being attached to it. And then in 1971, he adopted the name or title Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh. Um, and so he has a very interesting reason for changing his name, which I will quote here. And it is, calling myself Bhagwan was simply symbolic that now I have taken a different dimension to work and it has been tremendously useful. All the wrong people automatically disappeared and a totally different quality of people started arriving. It worked well. Only those who are ready to dissolve with me remained. All others escaped. They created space around me. Otherwise, they were crowding too much, and it was very difficult for the real seekers to come close to me. The crowd disappeared. The word Bhagwan functioned like an atomic explosion. It did well. I am happy that I chose it. End quote. And so, Bhagwan means blessed one, and Shri is a similar term as to calling someone Sir in English. So people were kind of offended that he took it upon himself to call himself the blessed one, as that was a term that was saved for blessed ones, and they didn't really consider him that. Like, you can't really deem yourself that. Um, so that's kind of what he was saying, is that anyone who opposed actually what he was saying left, but everyone who supported him stayed, so it kind of, like, weeded out his followers. And then in 1974, he established his new headquarters for his movement in Pune, and it was called Ashram. So that's what the location was called. And this is actually still the location for an Osho International Meditation Resort. So you can actually go to this resort and learn from the teachings of Rajneesh today, which is crazy. But I kind of want to do it just for fun. So would these be his like cult teachings or pre-cult teachings? They would be cuz there's not really a separation between his cult teachings and his pre-cult teachings. Um they would be like focus on meditation and therapy and you would listen to recordings of him speaking kind of was what I kind of found. So they, they advertise it as a meditation retreat. So you go there and you focus on like personal wellness. Um, but in the sense of how he focused on it. Okay. Yeah. I wasn't sure if it was like, he was still like, they were trying to keep his cult image alive, I guess, post everything that happened. Yeah. Um, But cool. So I think, and this might be wrong, but I feel like he was considered a cult because his beliefs were so vastly different than the Christian values at the time. And so it went so far against what everyone else believed that he was viewed so negatively. But I believe that there are good things in what he taught, not necessarily all of it. Um, it was very interesting doing his research and I would highly recommend that everyone else go and kind of look into his teachings. I didn't really get a chance to do that. So if I'm dead wrong, let me know. Um, but yeah, so if you want to see what meditating with him is like, you can do this. Um, in 1975, quite a few therapists from the human potential movement joined I'm not familiar with this movement, and I tried to Google it and look it up, but it was very confusing, Um, so I'll leave that to you guys. And so they allowed Rajneesh to 
complement his meditations with therapy group sessions. And so this kind of became a huge source of income for him. And it was also when the Westerners discovered Rajneesh. And so he received a lot of donations from his followers because a lot of them were wealthy. And then because Ashram was so large, he was able to expand his reach and record and print his teachings to share with the world. And so he actually made quite a bit of money from selling his books and recordings of his teachings. And then over the next few years, Ashram grew exponentially. And by 1981, Ashram was receiving around 30,000 visitors each year. And most of them were European and American. However, on April 10th, 1981, Rajneesh started a three and a half year self-imposed public silence where he didn't speak to anyone in the public. He would only speak to his secretary. And so his retreats kind of changed from a lecture and like speaker based format to sitting in silence with music or recorded spiritual readings being played. And then because of his expansion, he started looking for bigger places to host his retreats in 1980, but tensions were growing between him and the Indian government. So most of his requests to expand in India were denied. Um, the government actually stopped giving visas to any visitor who had ashram as their final destination of travel. So they like wouldn't let them into India. And there was also an assassination attempt on Rajneesh in May of 1980. And the assassin said that he believed that Rajneesh was a CIA agent. And that's why he tried to kill him. Um, with the increase in tensions between Ashram and the Indian government, Rajneesh decided to move his retreat to the United States. And this is where it gets a little hairy. Um, so on June 1st, 1981, Rajneesh traveled to the USA on a tourist visa. And then 12 days later, Rajneesh's secretary, Sheila, her husband bought property in Oregon for $5.75 million. And this property was 64,229 acres large or 260 square kilometers. So absolutely massive. That's big. Yeah. <laughs> so Holy big. Crap. Because, yeah, growing up on a quarter section of land that's 160 acres, I can't even fathom this size. And so it was located in the Jefferson and Wasco counties. Um, I apologize if I say Waco. I kept reading it as Waco, but it's not Waco. Um, most of the ranch was in the Wasco County, which had a population of 20,000 people and was made up of mostly farms. So it was a very rural community. Um and so Rajneesh then incorporated this property as a town called Rajneesh Puram, and they called it Rancho Rajneesh unofficially. And so then he moved there uh, August 29th, 1981. And so this cult was run in a very interesting way where he had all the power, even though he didn't have direct involvement in the daily operations of the organization. And so therefore, he depended fully on his secretary, Sheila, to run the place. And so they would meet in person once a day to kind of discuss ideas and important issues that were going on within the town. Um, and so the only contact Rajneesh would have with his followers was when they would line up beside the driveway and he would just drive by them in his Rolls Royce. And um, they, he was called in the U.S. the Rolls Royce guru because of his like a drive-by meetings with his followers. Um, and then when he wasn't lecturing or because he wasn't lecturing due to his public silence, his followers would just listen to recordings of his beliefs throughout their practices that have been pre-recorded from years past. Um, so the Sheila lady is very interesting because she controlled all of the finances and all of the cult's activities. And so she would hold meetings in her living quarters for any like critical decisions that needed to be discussed, um, but would also make decisions on her own. And so since she was only accountable to Rajneesh, no one challenged her. And if they did, they were risking expulsion from the group. Um, and so then when they moved to Oregon, they had hoped to kind of foster positive relationships with the surrounding community, but they were very unsuccessful. And so some of the hospitals, hostility arose because of their religious beliefs, because the surrounding area was largely Christian and their openness towards sex was very frowned upon. Um, but the largest issues were around the land use laws, which restrained developing in rural areas. 
So to kind of get around this, they tried to seize control of a small town near Rajneeshpuram by exploiting the voter registration laws. And so this was kind of when people of Wasco County decided they had had enough with this group and tensions continued to grow until we reached 1984 and we have the bioterror attack. So this salmonella attack was the first confirmed instance of chemical or biological terrorism to occur in the United States. But there's actually not a lot known about it. So it was very hard for me to research and actually like figure out what went on. But what I could find was that what started it was there were three elected commissioners in Wasco County and there were two that were very hostile towards the group. And they were up for re-election in 1984. So Rajneesh and Sheila decided that they needed to control this election. And they tried to find someone to run against them, but couldn't find anyone. So then Sheila decided that they would bring thousands of homeless people from cities around the country because the homeless people were able to vote in the election due to um, their voter registration laws or something. I didn't fully understand that, but... Um, she brought all those people in because they could be convinced to vote in favor of the Rajneeshis, which is what the group's followers were called. And then Sheila decided that they should make all of the people in the county sick so they just couldn't vote. Uh, supposedly, she had run this by Rajneesh, and he had said that it was best not to hurt anyone, but if some people died, not to worry about it. Um, we don't fully know how true that statement is. But he wasn't completely against it. So Sheila was also being assisted by a lady named Pooja. And she was in charge of their medical corporation and had complete control over their medical facilities. Um, a lot of people did not like her. And she was often referred to as Dr. Mengele's, um, the angel of death from the Holocaust. So not a nice lady. And I have a quote that really encapsulates who she was and how she was viewed. Um, there was something about Pooja that sent shivers of revulsion up and down my spine the moment I met her. There was nothing I could put my finger on beyond her phony, sickeningly sweet smile. It was years before she became widely known as a Dr. Mangales of the Cyanus community, the alleged perpetrator of sadistic medical practices that verged on the criminal. My reaction to her seemed irrational. Sheila trusted her implicitly, end quote. So it kind of is very scary that Sheila completely trusted her and saw nothing wrong with the way she acted, but everyone was terrified of her. And so Pooja had researched several different biological agents for this terror attack, some of which include Salmonella typhi, which causes typhoid fever. Um, no one really knows why they didn't decide to use a strain of salmonella, um, but it was speculated that they didn't want to make people that sick and starting a typhoid fever outbreak was kind of a bit excessive. Um, she researched hepatitis and Giardia lamblia, which is beaver fever. And then she also researched, researched salmonella typhimurium, which is the strain of salmonella that causes food poisoning or is associated with food poisoning. And so this one was considered because it makes people sick enough, but it wouldn't kill them. And so that's what they used. And Pooja rationalized this research by saying that she needed to research poisons that could be used against the cult instead of by the cult. And they obtained the salmonella strain between October 1983 and February 1984 from a research facility. Um, Pooja produced the S. typhimurium in a secret lab in Rajneeshpuram that was destroyed before it could be searched. And then she moved to a different lab, which was able to be searched. And it was described as a, quote, germ warfare lab, end quote. So that's scary. Um, the first incident incident of poisoning happened on August 24th, 1984, when the three commissioners visited Rajneesh Param, and they were given water laced with the salmonella, and they became sick, and one actually uh, ended up in the hospital. As far as I know, they all survived, though. The second incident didn't have any victims, which is good, because it involved spreading a liquid that contained salmonella onto doorknobs and urinal handles in the county courthouse. Um... I don't know if, Rebecca, if you talk about this, how 
uh, like ingesting the salmonella, like even if just touching it would have been able to get them sick or if they actually have to like eat it? Uh, I don't talk much about that. Nicole had two slides about salmonella poisoning that I uh, can talk about. I don't think it, it implicitly talks about whether you ingest it or not, but I kind of focused more on like forensic epidemiology and like what it's used for. Okay. But sounds good. Yeah. So I feel like with this, you have to actually ingest it. You can't just touching it isn't enough to get sick. Um, so another incident incident was when Pooja and Sheila went into a supermarket and sprinkled the liquid on lettuce and salad dressing. Um, it was suggested by Pooja at that time that she wanted to inject it into milk cartons, but we don't know for sure if she did or not. Um, I did read an article that said a family had gotten sick from drinking contaminated milk, but I wasn't able to like verify if the milk was contaminated by her or not. And that's where a lot of the ambiguity was from because there was a lot of newspaper articles talking about the salmonella outbreak, but none of them actually mentioned the cult's involvement with it because they still don't really know um, like how far their reach was. And so then another almost incident was when Pooja asked a fellow member to put the salmonella lace liquid into food at nursing homes and schools that she had access to. Uh, she didn't actually do this, which is a very good thing. And then in early September 1984, they started pouring vials containing the salmonella into food in restaurants in the area. And so the CDC reported that 751 people got sick after eating in the local restaurants. And so the salmonella was supposedly put into salad dressings, coffee creamers, and salads in a few different restaurants. They had plans to contaminate the whole water system of the town. Um... And they were able to get their hands on maps of the town's water system, but Pooja wasn't able to produce enough salmonella to contaminate the water system by the time they were going back to the town that the um, elections were held in. And so then the other time they were attempting to contaminate it, a police car showed up and scared them off as they were getting ready to pour the salsa into the water tank, which is what they called the salmonella. Um... And so then not long after the salmonella attacks, Sheila, Pooja, and a few others actually fled Rajneesh Pram like a month or two later. Actually, no, I think it was days after. Um, but that's all we know about the salmonella attacks of 1984 that can be linked back to Rajneesh and his followers. And so then in October of 1984, this all happened in September... Rajneesh ended his public silence and started to, quote, speak his own truths, end quote. Um, and so he was speaking pretty much every day. And he said that he had no knowledge of any of the crimes his secretary, Sheila, had committed and blamed pretty much everything on her since she was the main contact with the world while he was practicing his public silence. And so basically anything his followers did between 1981 and 1984, he claims he had nothing to do with it. And at one point he even said that he wasn't a religious teacher. So part of me thinks that his vow of public silence was extremely conveniently timed um, because it was when all of the issues were happening. And he's like, no, I can't be held accountable because I didn't know because I wasn't speaking with the followers. Um, either way, one year later, on October 23rd, 1985, a federal jury found Rajneesh and some of his disciples guilty of conspiracy to evade immigration laws. And so he was then deported from the United States and he tried to enter 21 different countries and it took him two years of flying to each of the 21 countries before he finally arrived back in Pune and his original ashram. And so none of those countries would let him in. They'd be like, oh, yeah, no, you can stay. And then he would land and they're like, actually, you have two weeks to leave. And then he would have to go somewhere else. And so he just like jetted around the world trying to find somewhere to stay before coming back to India. And then in 1988, his teachings focused largely on Zen. And then in 1989, he had given one of the longest lectures in his repertoire titled Communism and Zen Fire Zen Wind. And then by 1989, he was no longer wanted to be called Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh and instead took the name Osho. Um, it's a Buddhist name, but I didn't look into what it means. 
And then his last teaching was in April 1989. And from then on, he would kind of just silently join his followers. He died in January 19th, 1990 at his ashram in Pune, India at the age of 58. His cause of death was heart failure, but a lot of his followers said it was because, quote, living in the body had become hell, end quote, after he was supposedly poisoned in the U.S. jails while awaiting deportation. Um, that's what they thought caused his death, but there's no actual proof to that. And so his ashes are kept in his bedroom at the ashram and his epitaph reads, never born, never died, only visited this planet Earth between December 11th, 1931 and January 19th, 1990. Um, so Rajneesh was largely considered one of the most controversial spiritual leaders to have come from India in the 20th century. And his message of sexual, emotional, spiritual, and institutional liberation, as well as the pleasure he took in causing offense, ensured that his life was surrounded by controversy. And so he often attacked traditional concepts of nationalism. He openly expressed contempt for politicians and poked fun at leading figures of many religions. A lot of the sources said that he would use humor and kind of like gaslighting. Um, or not necessarily gaslighting, but like making fun at other people's expense, I guess. I can't remember the word for that, but um, as part of his teachings, if he didn't like like or respect someone, I would highly suggest that you kind of check out his teachings. They are very interesting. Um, but I also found it very weird that while he like his cult was associated with the salmonella attacks, he might not have actually had like any part in it. But it was like Sheila and Pooja who were the main perpetrators, but there's like, they don't even have their own Wikipedia pages. Which is very interesting, because they were the main instigators. Yeah, I find it, honestly, like you said, fascinating that he may not have even had a part in it. Like, I yeah. would not have even expected his secretary or whoever she was to have been kind of the main perpetrator and the main um, brains behind it all. Yeah, because normally when we hear of, like, cult leaders, they're so involved in everything. And so when there's this mass disaster or whatever that's going on with them, they're at the forefront. Yeah. And but it seems... Was, go ahead. I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, it seemed like he genuinely wanted to, like, teach and, like, be this person for these people. And then it was just, yeah. there was a couple bad eggs in his group that took advantage of that. Yeah, I would agree with that. I'd find it very interesting. And I think there's a couple documentaries and stuff. I didn't have time to watch them on like living in the cult um, that I think would be kind of interesting. But yeah, that's all that I have for Bhagwan Tree Rajneesh. Well, thank you for sharing and educating. I also love that... Well, I don't know if I'd say love, but I find it cool that what his epitaph reads, like, never born, never died, only visited during... Between this time, I find yeah. that honestly kind of nice, kind of cool. No, I agree. Yeah, I was going to mention something about that, too. That's kind of a dope epitaph. Because yeah. <laughs> it stays true to all of his teachings. He's like, no, I, I was just visiting. Yeah. Which is so cool. Well, thank you for um, telling us all about him. Um, and then, Rebecca, do you want to kind of take it from here and teach us about epidemiology and how it's kind of related to the salmonella and this bioterrorism? Yeah, I would love to. Um, so a relatively large portion of this discussion is going to be sort of on epidemiology in general, not just forensic epidemiology, as uh, throughout my research, I realized that they are like everything about them is pretty much the same. And I know like just tacking the word forensic onto the front doesn't really make it different, but like all of the investigative techniques and stuff they use for them are the same for forensic and other epidemiological investigations. Uh, the forensic epidemiologists just don't research as many epidemiology epidemiological uh, events that the regular ones do. So with that being said, 
The CDC defines epidemiology as the study of the distribution and determinants of health-related states and events in specified populations. So I'm going to simplify that a little bit throughout the next couple slides. Um, But before I started researching this, I really only thought epidemiology studied diseases that could impact a population. Um, But since this research, I've learned that that is very much not the case. And epidemiology is used like for every kind of adverse health event that could happen in a population. So essentially, epidemiology studies I said that prematurely because I have it written there. Um, essentially, epidemiology is a study on anything that has an inverse impact on population. Uh, and this population could be as small as a neighborhood or a school, uh, but it also could be on like a country or a global scale. So it's really just any population that's impacted by the same thing. So there's a lot of public health problems and events that epidemiologists will investigate that aren't diseases. Um, And the CDC lists a couple broad categories of them that I'm going to list now. Um, So the first one is environmental exposures. And an example of this would be like lead, uh, because thanks to epidemiology, it's largely the reason we don't make lead paint anymore, because we've realized that is actually detrimental to our health. Um, Infectious diseases, which I'm sure we're all familiar with thanks to COVID. Uh, Injuries, like if there's an increase in assaults or homicides in a particular community. I was very interested actually to realize that epidemiology also investigates homicide. Like I, for some reason, didn't think they'd have anything to do with that. But if it's increasing in a community, then they're likely to be involved. Um, Next is non-infectious diseases, such as an increase in the frequency of a particular birth defect, um, or like the case of Rajneesh, it could even be into the rise in salmonella poisonings in a county. Um, Natural disasters, such as hurricanes, tsunamis, earthquakes, all those not-so-fun things. And the final one is terrorism, which... Also, arguably, we could put Rajneesh's uh, attack into um, because essentially um, epidemiologists that research terrorism, oftentimes the terrorism does come from a group uh, like Om Shinrico in the last episode or Rajneesh during this one with Salmonella. One of the pillars, for lack of a better word, of the science of epidemiology is to determine the cause of community health problems and then determine preventative or controlling measures to ensure that the safety of the community uh, is at the forefront and they stop the problem or at least control the outbreak of the problem as much as possible. So there are two types of investigations that epidemiologists will generally conduct, and these are causal uh, causations and specific, sorry, shouldn't say causal, and these are general causations and specific causations. Uh, General causations is an investigation into whether exposure can cause the outcome in the population that's being observed. So in the case of Rajneesh, it would just be looking at whether a case of salmonella could cause the symptoms that we're seeing community-wide. And specific causation is very similar, um, but it just looks at, um, like, say, an individual person who comes in with the salmonella, and that is usually investigated by, like, a practitioner, like a doctor or something, and then that's brought in for the whole case of general causation to kind of add to their, their evidence. So... To conduct an epidemiological study, epidemiologists use what's called the Hill criteria to start uh, as the standard for their investigations. So the Hill criteria was created in 1965 after a man named Sir Austin Bradford Hill, and it consists of a list of nine criterias that help to determine the cause and effect relationship between an adverse health event and a population. So these nine criteria are temporal relationship, which is basically making sure that the exposure to whatever was caused. For the rest of this, I'm just going to, instead of saying cause and the outcome, I'm just going to use salmonella and outcome because it's more relevant. Um, 
So temporal relationship, which says that the exposure to salmonella must precede the outcome. So if they got sick and then were exposed, like that doesn't lend very good evidence that salmonella was the cause. Um, Strength of association, and this is uh, to ensure that the epidemiologists conduct statistical tests to determine how strong the association between the cause and effect are, so the salmonella and the symptoms and hospital increases. The dose-response relationship, which looks at whether an increase in exposure will also increase the frequency of symptoms. So if this is true, then it does mean that there's higher evidence for a causal relationship, but it's not the only thing that says that it's definitely happening. So if it increase in exposure and the outcome doesn't increase, that doesn't automatically mean that say salmonella isn't responsible for it. It just means there could be other like uh, other variables that are impacting how this is increasing. So next is consistency, which looks at whether the association uh, seen amongst different populations in different geological settings is the same or different. So are we seeing this worldwide? Uh, is the effect that's happening here the same as a salmonella poisoning we saw in India? Because that could mean that we could bring some of their research over. Um, next is plausibility, which looks at whether the association between the salmonella and the symptoms is explainable based on science's current understanding of the effects of the cause. And the last one is analogy, which basically says that if there's enough strong evidence of one causal relationship, then researchers should be more open to also accepting weaker evidence uh, for it if there was a case that was really similar that could have caused similar effects. So, Journey, you were saying how there's multiple strains of salmonella. So it's like if we already saw an outbreak in one type of salmonella, we should be open to bringing along research from that one to see how the other salmonella strain can impact the population as well, because it's likely that they will have some similarities. So the there's actually three more. I was mistaken. Um, the next one is experiment, but this one's pretty self-explanatory by the name, just basically means that in order to find a causal association between the salmonella and the symptoms, they have to actually study uh, study the frequency of it using the appropriate scientific methods. Um, next is specificity, and this looks at to which degree the uh, salmonella is associated with a particular symptom or outcome. Um, and this can often be a tricky thing because most things that aren't good for human health are going to have more than one symptom or more one symptom is going to have more than one cause. So it's like lung cancer can be caused by smoking cigarettes, but it can also be caused by a multitude of other things. Uh, so the last one, which is the last one this time, is coherence, which just means that the cause and effect relationship should make sense uh, and at least partially align with what we currently know about, say, salmonella. So if we found that this food poisoning was killing like a really high population of people, but historically the research has shown that this strain of salmonella only makes people sick and throwing up, then we would have, it wouldn't really strengthen the case that it is salmonella when we might have to start looking at if anything was added to it or if it's something different altogether. So much of what's used in regular epidemiological investigations also applies to forensic epidemiology. So like that, um, the Hill criteria is also all used by forensic epidemiologists. Um, so with all of the kind of background of how all of these studies are conducted, I wanted to get a little bit into the history of forensic epidemiology, which admittedly is not that long because forensic epidemiology was only actually first coined in the 1990s. Uh, so the term forensic epidemiology, and the more I say it, the less it sounds like a word, um, was only used for the first time in 1999 by Dr. Ken Alibeck. He was the former chief deputy of the USSR bioweapon program, and it was coined when he was uh, involved in a governmental investigation of bioterrorism in the USSR. And then 
he, when he first coined this term forensic epidemiology, he defined it as a study that would help to distinguish between man-made and natural epidemics. And then after this, we look to the anthrax attacks in the U.S. in 2001. And this is the first time that the CDC's National Center for Infectious Disease had defined forensic epidemiology. And their definition stated that it is a, quote, systematic approach to the investigation of an act of bioterrorism, as well as other public health emergencies, unquote. So. Really, the beginning of forensic epidemiology was solely for the purpose of investigating bioterrorism. And even though we didn't have the term forensic epidemiology back when the salmonella poisons were happening, um, there's no doubt that they were using epidemiologists to kind of figure out, OK, this is the population getting sick. How are they all related how can we figure out what it is? And then, okay, it's salmonella. How can we prevent it? Um, they just didn't realize it was forensic at the time, I suppose. Um, so in 2002, a collaboration of the CDC and the FBI developed a document that was called the Criminal and Epidemiological Investigation Handbook. And this was meant to be used to train both law enforcement and public health officials on how to investigate um, and develop investigative techniques for cases that might involve epidemiological factors. So despite largely being used in the beginning for determining causes of and then preventing bioterrorism, forensic epidemiology has grown into a much larger discipline, which provides very useful evidence to both criminal and civil cases. So, for example, of a civil case, although the term uh, wasn't around in the 1960s to 80s, there were countless lawsuits worldwide against companies that manufactured thalidomide, uh, as many children were born with uh, various birth defects by women who had taken this prescription drug. Uh, at the time the drug was being administered, um, it wasn't publicly known that thalidomide would cause birth defects. So forensic epidemiology investigations were very important in determining the cause and effect between thalidomide and the subsequent birth defects as it helped many of the victims win lawsuits against the companies that manufactured it. So forensic epidemiologists are also trained to understand what the normal or expected levels of disease, illness and death are for whichever region they're working in. And so they use this knowledge to evaluate large quantities of data from all sorts of uh basically health records. So they use emergency department records, uh, prescription orders, mortality rates for a county and Pretty much anything you could think of that tracks statistics of a population, this is what they're uh, looking through. And so this part of forensic epidemiology is referred to as surveillance. And it's often done when there is suspicions that some sort of criminal activity involving bioweapons, poisons or other things that could affect a population's health uh, are involved. So one of these examples um, that I had mentioned briefly earlier that I thought was pretty cool that forensic epidemiologists are involved in was with homicide investigations. Um, so in helping with those, they can help a medical examiner determine whether the injuries sustained on a body are consistent with indicators of what's known about the case. So an interesting example that I found for this was that they can, if if a body is brought to the medical examiner uh, after they were found for uh, after committing suicide, a forensic epidemiologist can help the medical examiner determine if this was actually a suicide based on what's being seen or if it was a homicide that someone had attempted to cover and make look like a suicide to avoid suspicion. I don't know how they I know there's some things that could be obvious about it, but I just I never would have thought forensic epidemiologists would be involved in that process. And I'm learning a lot about them and it sounds pretty cool. <laughs> um, but the main types of investigations that forensic epidemiologists generally assist in are homicides, injuries, pharmacovigilance, um, which I've never heard that word before, but it's basically ensuring that pharmacological uh, like drugs and stuff like that are not being tampered with or not going to cause any adverse side effects no one knows about. Um, and pharmacovigilance is actually what 
was occurring when they were investigating the thalidomide. Um, another thing that I, when I was doing research on forensic epidemiology for the slides that I was going to post on Instagram, um, mm-hmm. they were played a big part in investigating car crashes. And so they, yeah, I did, I did read that. It was too. so weird that they were like, yeah, you would get a forensic epidemiologist to look into whether or not if so, if the person died in the car crash, they were wearing their seatbelt or whatever. Yeah. And they also could find like, determine, uh, if they were supposedly drunk driving, they can determine like whether this accident is actually in line with what you'd expect from a drunk driving accident or if it was like tampered with or made to look like they were responsible. I just thought that was so cool. I had no idea. Yeah, they did that. it was totally weird for me to be like, OK, they actually work with car crashes, not just like sicknesses and diseases. Yeah, I fully only knew what epidemiology was in like the aspect of covid. So I assumed it was like only disease. Yeah. I actually didn't know. Besides bioterrorism, I assumed that's all they would deal with in terms of Yeah, crime, same here. Which I guess was, yeah, I guess that was like uh, naive of me to do, but now we're exactly. learning. So. <laughs> um, so there's two more that they commonly deal with in addition to the car crashes. Um, and this is environmental toxin exposure and medical negligence claims. So I also thought the medical negligence claims was interesting because um, it's basically like they look at records in hospitals such as the time, like the time of death, who was working at the time of death and stuff like this. Because in some medical negligence cases, um, and actually in our episode about the two female serial killers, um, one of them was medically negligent. They were killing her patients. So they would look at all of this evidence and see that, okay, on this person's shift, say three people died, which is normal for an emergency department. But on this person's shift over the past six months, it has been 10 people per shift, which is very abnormal. So then they kind of connect those dots and can make an actual case for medical negligence, which is really interesting. Um, so of course there's a lot of subsections of all of these types of investigations, just as there is with every other aspect of a forensic investigation. Um, but yeah, that's just kind of like the umbrellas of what they deal with. So in the case of Rajneesh, which was a bioterrorism attack, uh, forensic epidemiologists, while not known as of, sorry, not known as forensic epidemiologists at the time, played a major role in conducting surveillance of the population affected. Uh, they had to look at the timeline of events, the frequency of the poisoning over time and in the general population. Um, they had to look at whether there was a spike in the frequency um, and whether the events were caused intentionally by someone or caused by some other accident or mistake. Like if a bunch of people or a restaurant just wasn't cooking their chicken all the way through, could it have been caused by people eating there? So of course they had to use all of the data that they could from this to figure out the actual cause of the illness that was occurring. Um, And I think it's interesting because they're basically just detectives, but they're not detectives to find who's doing it. They're trying to figure out what's causing it, which is pretty neat. They're like scientific detectives. (laughs) Um, So that's all I really have to say on forensic epidemiology. Um, Like I said before, beginning this research, I knew really little about it. But once I got into it, It was super interesting, and I hope everyone else found it interesting and learned a little something, because I know that I did. Um, But just before I wrap up, um, Nicole had written a couple notes on what exactly a salmonella infection looks like and kind of the prevalence and stuff on it. So I just wanted to share that because it's pretty interesting, and we did talk a lot about salmonella in this case. Um, So salmonella are bacteria that reside in the intestines of animals and humans. People can become sick by eating contaminated foods, drinking contaminated water, or touching infected animals. Uh, This could be the animal themselves, their feces, or the infected animal's environment. Children under five years old and anyone with a weakened immune system are more likely to get salmonella infections. And the main symptom of these infections are diarrhea, fever, and stomach cramps, which typically emerge between six hours to six days after exposure. 
I didn't know it could occur so long after exposure. So that's really interesting. Um, symptoms can last between four and seven days on average, but some reports have noted that the onset of symptoms don't develop for several weeks post exposure and some cases where symptoms last for multiple weeks. Lab tests are required to diagnose salmonella infections and antibiotic treatment is typically not the initial recommendation to treat it, um, as most people recover within four to seven days without the use of antibiotics. So you kind of generally, if you have a healthy immune system, just have to let it run its course. Um, but antibiotics are typically only recommended for the severe cases and those who are at risk. The CDC reports that there is an estimated uh, 1.35 uh, million illnesses uh, caused by salmonella with 26,500 hospitalizations and 420 deaths in the U.S. every year. So salmonella is pretty prevalent because, I mean, if if you are someone who's gotten food poisoning, it is pretty likely that you've been if infected with one of the strains of salmonella. Um, and finally, it is also recommended that if you're looking for turtles as pets, you don't want to buy any with shells that are less than four inches long, which happens to be the average width of a toilet paper roll if uh, you don't have a ruler. Um, and this is because they can cause salmonella outbreaks and oftentimes they're bought as pets for children who are at higher risk of salmonella infections, um, which obviously isn't a good thing. Turtles are great pets if they are longer than four inches long and not for children. So, <laughs> okay. When I first read that, I couldn't help but laugh because it's like right on the CDC's webpage. It's like an animate, not animation, but a graphic of a toilet paper roll and a turtle. And it was like, this is bad. <laughs> you don't want small turtles. <laughs> That's, That's so strange. Of all things, it's turtles. But like, what? Everyone knows what a toilet paper roll looks like, so it's a perfect yeah. visual to be like, you yeah. want something bigger, and you're not going to look crazy if you have like an empty toilet paper roll, and you like go into the pet store, and you're like, it has to be longer than this. Right? But I also find it... The U.S. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead, Rebecca. Oh, it's okay. I was just going to say the U.S. will use any measurement besides <laughs> metric to measure something. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I also find it interesting, oh, though, funny. because, like, any of the pet stores that I've gone to in the past, they sell those, like, itty-bitty, like, palm-sized turtles, like, smaller than your palm. Yeah. And there's no, from what I remember, there had never been any, hey, by the way, like, these turtles can carry salmonella just to beware. Like, none of that. I also wonder why it's only ones that are less than four inches long. Like, what happens when they grow larger? Yeah. yeah. I don't know. I or think like what it is specifically about the turtle that makes them a, like, carrier of salmonella. Maybe this is another question for epidemiologists. Yeah. yeah. Get on it, guys. <laughs> All of our epidemiologist listeners, let us know. Yeah, that would be much appreciated. <laughs> I feel like we could do a quick Google search, but I really... They're outer skin and shell surfaces. So I feel like majority of turtles could give you salmonella, but I feel like the little ones are more prone to being pets, and those ones thus have a higher percentage just because of how much more popular they are as pets. Like, you don't really see people walking around with a massive massive turtle just, like, as a pet. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, um, thank you to the both of you for teaching me all about um, Rajneesh and forensic epidemiology. Uh, next episode, I'm actually really excited for this next one. It's on the anthill kids and cult typologies. Um, so for our Canadian listeners out there, the anthill kids is actually for a Quebec cult and they're kind of messed up from what I remember. So I never heard about them until our last recording. So I am really excited to learn about a Canadian cult. Yeah. I'm so excited for this. Yeah, I, <laughs> I'm very much looking forward to it. Um, and I have a joke for you guys. So, Yay. How do you avoid dangerous cults? How? <laughs> you practice safe sex. 
Oh my gosh. S E C T S. Be sure. Love it. Um, That's but yes. so applicable to this episode. <laughs> um, on that note, Journey, where can people find us? People can find us on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook at What the Forensics. Our Twitter is WT Forensics PC. Our website is whatthefrensics.ca, and our email is whatthefrensics at gmail.com. Um, we're also playing around with the idea of recording the video of these episodes. If that's something you guys would like, let us know, and we can look even more into that and start posting more on YouTube, because we've fallen very, very behind on that, but that's okay. Um, and also, we are more active on Instagram and Facebook, so if you want to get a hold of us, send us a DM or a private message or something on there or our email i guess yeah um and also give us a review if you listen to our podcast wherever you listen to our podcasts um whether it just be star ratings we recommend five stars uh or (laughs) or um like actually giving us comments and reviews we'd love to read them and it would be very helpful yeah. to us. It, it just gives us a baseline of like where to go from here, what to change, what you guys like, what, you know, we want to kind of curate this podcast for our listeners. That's the whole point of it. So um, feedback is always very much appreciated. Do you guys have anything else to add? No. Um, when you give us reviews, it moves us up on the leaderboard on iTunes. So dude, I didn't know that. So <laughs> please <Yeah>. do that. <laughs> But yeah, so this has been yet another episode of What the Forensics. We hope you enjoyed it. We hope you learned something new. And we can't wait to see you next time. Bye. 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 Just a reminder to everyone that we are not professionals in the forensic science field. We are just interested in forensics and want to share what we are learning with our listeners. We're trying to give you the most accurate information, but we are human and can make mistakes. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope to see you next week. Mm